Welcome back, everyone, to Mission Daily. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO of Mission.org. And today I have my friend Amir Shavat joining the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming to the studio. So good having people in Austin that I can actually see face to face and not virtual. Amir, you have an amazing background. Um, Thank you. I found that out when we went paddleboarding and I was like, he has literally worked at every place, every big tech company, Slack, Twitch, Google, I mean, everywhere, Twitter. So I would love for you to introduce your background because it's so wide ranging. Awesome. Thank you. Um, That's a nice way to say I'm old. Uh, (laughs) Well experienced. Well experienced. experienced, Seasoned. Uh, So today I'm an angel investor and um, moving, transitioning into the dark side. So opening my own uh, fund, uh, focusing on dev tools and things that I love Mm -hmm. um, on infrastructure, AI, dev tools and stuff like that. if you want to describe me, I'm a one-trick pony. I know how to build developer platforms, and I've done that in all the rides in the park. Uh, started at Microsoft, worked on um, on SharePoint and .NET and Windows Mobile, if you remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, then went to Google, worked on uh, worked with the Chrome and Cloud and Android team, working with developers, building on top of Android and Google Maps and all of that. So like developer platforms end to end. Mm-hmm. Um, then created the startup program for Google and created the Google developer groups. So manage all of developer relations scalable programs around the world. Um, and then I joined a small startup called Slack. <laughs> this yep. was two weeks before uh, we launched the platform, the APIs. Mm-hmm. And we were about 60 people in the company, maybe a little bit more. And when I left, we were 2,000 people in the company. And we had 250,000 weekly active developers on using our platform. So that was amazing. crazy. Um, Yes. Just thinking about like, how do you grow the company twice its size every two weeks is amazing. Wow. Um, Then I joined a small, another small company called AWS. Mm -hmm. uh, And I was the VP of of Twitch's API. So Twitch is a streaming platform for uh, kids to play games like uh, World of Warcraft. And my job was to create the tools that connect the game studios uh, Riot and Blizzard and Ubisoft and all of these uh, companies uh, into the Twitch experience. Then when Slack had an IPO, I kind of tried to retire and failed at that. And How long were you retired for? Very few, until my wife told me to go out. <laughs> Just to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, I was too bored. Um, so I joined a startup uh, and I like co-founded a startup called uh, Reshuffle, which was basically another yet another developer platform and that was acquired by uh, Twitter two and a half years ago, uh, Jack Dorsey's Twitter. Yep. Uh, and then uh, when Elon came in, he basically fired all of us and uh, replaced 150 people who were passionate about an open platform with two engineers. Um, and I'm recovering from that. So yeah. uh, now I want to invest in open platforms and in developer tools that make people uh, happy and productive. Yep. So, okay, you've been in this space for so long, like you said, One Trick Pony. What makes for building a good developer platform? Like, I mean, obviously all these companies have wanted you for a long time and you're getting pulled to the biggest tech companies who are building the biggest platforms, but what makes a good ecosystem for developers or why did you have the love that you did of all these developers? So first of all, you need to have an anchor of a good product. Mm -hmm. Slack was an amazing product, so it created a good platform for developers. Android was very popular, so it created 
uh, good platform for developers. A lot of people are trying to build a platform for developers without anchoring, anchoring it under uh, a good product. So I always say product market fit is much, much more important and precedes a community mm -hmm. of developers. So first build something that people love and then developers would love it. Developers basically care about three aspects. Uh, at Twitch, we called it money, love, and fame. So they want reach. They want to get to, a, to, to make an impact on a lot of users. Mm -hmm. So solving discovery for them, like Google Play, for example, yeah. is a good way to get developers to go to if they have an ability to get to a lot of users. Uh, fame is the engagement. Give them the tools and capabilities to build amazing applications mm -hmm. for those users. So, for example, and if we go back to Android, all the abilities that developers could do in Android. If a developer couldn't build Angry Bird, they couldn't get the engagement that Angry Bird got on on, yeah. uh, on the phone. And the last thing is money, which is the capabilities to turn that love and fame into something that is a business that I can monetize. Mm -hmm. So capability, again, if we go back to the Google Play uh, example, the ability to charge and do micro app payments and do subscriptions are capabilities that developers care about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then what do you see like a shift? Do you see shifts coming? Because I know for a little while there, I was watching Web3 come and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Because to me, a lot of developers or anyone has been, they've been going on these platforms where they go in with rules that they thought were part of the platform and then the rules just changed. Yes. And like there goes our whole company. I mean, you saw it with Facebook, you even saw it with Google, a bunch of them. Um, whereas with Web3, it's like that has to be built into the platform, like a lot of the rules. It's like you go in and maybe the consensus has to change it. But then I kind of saw that trend die down. Like yeah. no one's talking about it anymore. And I get it. There's a lot of other things happening. But what developments do you see around that or just maybe trends in general when it comes to developers and these platforms that they're building on, you know, I would say pretty centralized companies? Yes, it is a problem where you're building on a centralized uh a company, you need to have very, very strong trust that they will not change the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And I basically, uh, I wrote a TechCrunch article about how Twitter like lost developer love and trust because mm -hmm. they changed the rules of the game. And I was uh, basically, the, my company was bought to open up the Twitter API and then they close it again. So developers learn that they can't trust a certain platform. Mm -hmm. But if you look at iOS, if you look at Salesforce, you look at companies that are, for a very, very long time have been very consistent in giving developers a very successful platform to, to work on. So mm -hmm. that's one thing. The second thing is that there's standards. So if I'm building for web, then there's no single company that could block me. If I'm building for email, there's SMTP and POP3, nobody can really block me. I'm thinking there's more and more standard, standard that needs to be built so that companies could not own. I'm now very excited about uh, Blue Sky. Tell me about that. I, I saw you tweeting about Blue Sky, but I was like, I don't know what this is. Is this okay. like a new social platform or where is he? <laughs> it's, it's a social protocol. Okay. So Jack Dorsey, when I, when he, when he bought my company, he told me, hey, look, look at Blue Sky. This is an idea that we're playing with. This was three years ago. And the idea is that 
In the same way I can send you an email and I don't care if you're in Outlook or in Gmail because there's a standard. Mm -hmm. What if we had this standard for social? What if we can create this social protocol so that you own the identity, so that you own the moderation, so that you own the curation of content and that you can move those from one platform to the other mm -hmm. so that you could build on top of these uh, standards as a developer without worrying that a single company is going to change the protocol, break your app, yeah. or own, or ask you to pay $45,000 a month mm -hmm. like a certain bird app is doing right now. Yep. Okay. So then what are the incentives? I mean, I'm surprised that Jack Dorsey would have wanted something like that because then I'm like, that kind of chips away at your own platform and like the control that many of these companies have, you know, had for a long time over the user data and not letting people, I mean, I think for a while, maybe still Twitter didn't really allow like YouTube to go on the platform and just things that we've experienced on our own where I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. Like I want to post our content there too, but like, why would he want that? Because he thinks that that's the right thing for humanity. He mm -hmm. actually think that he like, and he said this multiple times that Twitter should have been a protocol from the from the first from the get go, mm -hmm. and Twitter had a lot of pressure when it moved to be a public company to yeah. monetize. Yeah, and they wanted to shut down all the third party clients, and that's why they closed the API. Mm -hmm. So basically, his r biggest regret, and he tweeted about it multiple times in multiple platforms, is that we didn't have an open protocol that everybody could use freely. Mm -hmm. And that Twitter is just another client in that uh, in that protocol. And that's the intent that he wanted to have with Blue Sky. Okay. So with Blue Sky, maybe give me an example where, let's say I have 10 followers on Twitter. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't want to be on Twitter's platform anymore. Like, what can I do with those 10 people? Or like, what do I actually own with Blue Sky? Or how can I transfer that around? Or like, really own my following? So if, if Blue Sky would be successful, mm -hmm. and if the protocol would be adopted, you'd be able to take your followers, your content, your uh, moderation preferences, your curation, the content that you like and don't like mm -hmm. from one platform to the other so that you can move and also cross posts very easily between mm -hmm. one and another. Uh, if you know there's like a good integration between um, Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? Because they they're a single owner. Yep. They're, they're basically the same uh, company. But what if you could do that across multiple platforms? Mm -hmm. I think that's a much more stronger platform, both for creators mm -hmm. and for developers, because it, it, change, it shifts the ownership. And I think that will happen not just in social, but in many other areas. I'm an avid um, contributor to Google Maps. Mm -hmm. I've reviewed 900 places around the world. Are you a local guide? I'm a local guide, <laughs> level eight, really yeah. working hard then to get to level nine. Yeah, you get stuff when you, yeah. I remember I would have to approve budgets for yeah. uh, like level eight and nine contributors to get things. So, so I got socks a oh, few weeks yeah. ago. So. Okay, well, budget cuts. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying is that like for that amount of contribution mm -hmm. in modern social networks, I would get a lot of money. Mm -hmm. if, this were, if I were to do this reviews for 900 restaurants and places, Places on TikTok, yeah. I would make a. I could transform that into a lot of wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, but with Google Maps, I got socks, which is so. I'm 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 thinking we're gonna change the way people own uh, the content that they create. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the days of just posting on Facebook uh, a lot of content and not getting any value back at it is is gone. 
Yep. Yeah. I have seen that too with like, you can't just take your video from maybe TikTok and put it on Instagram because it actually, I think, penalizes you if you try and cross promote your content. Yeah. Which to me, I'm like, you want me to make unique content for every platform? No way. But then if you move to a world like you're talking about, I think the platforms would have to offer more because then they all start to kind of converge into being the same thing. And you really have to have like a unique value proposition of why am I going to be connected to these if, I mean, that's how I feel about Facebook and Instagram in a way. They've kind of merged into kind of one. And I'm like, whenever it's like, oh, let me post to Facebook too. I'm like, "Mm, I don't do Facebook anymore, but it's the same thing. I have the same followers in both places. So maybe I'll just consolidate just to one. Yes. Unless then, you give me a reason not exactly. to. Exactly. And then the channels coming back again, they their ownership is going to be the, the distribution. Mm-hmm. They're going to go and woo you and say, hey, you're a content creator. You, all, you have all this content. Put it on our channel. Mm-hmm. So I think it shifts the power from the networks, which in our generation have been like the strongest players yeah. and the strongest collectors of wealth. Somebody told me that money flows from the Silicon Valley, from the top, from Sand Hill, all the way to Facebook and stops there. Yeah, so <laughs> sounds about right. <laughs> VCs invest in startups, startups mm-hmm. spend their money on Google and Facebook, and, and, uh, and the wealth stops there. But if creators start owning and developers start owning uh, a big portion of the IP, then they could monetize that mm-hmm. and build probably a better network. Yep. So what kind of trends do you see then around developers? Because everything I see happening with AI, I'm like, everything's about to change. I mean, I think a lot of the code will not need to be written anymore. I think a lot of the content that's being created or edited or the video posts, like all of this is just getting condensed into AI tools. What do you see in the space of like, what will this look like going forward, especially around developers? I think AI is a revolution. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't predict the future, but I think it's a revolution in the order of magnitude of mobile and the order of magnitude of the web mm-hmm. and the order of magnitude of like a, a world shifting uh, perspective on life. And I think developers are going to be in the forefront of that. Uh, I talked to an engineer from Google and he said like 60% of the code he creates is done by Copilot, mm-hmm. which is an AI uh, friend for engineers, yep. but I'm seeing also um, tests. Like I'm seeing, I've seen a startup this week that uh, generates tests for code, mm-hmm. and if the tests fail, the AI changes the code. Mm-hmm. So like it, it actually helps developers with a lot of the man- mundane. Yeah, and in the future, we might be able to lower the barrier for a lot of code creation. Mm-hmm. So a person who's not an engineer would be able to. Um, with some intent, generate uh, code and workflows, and maybe AI would take a much bigger portion of what developers generate. I'm not thinking that developers are going to be go away, mm-hmm. but they're going to be much more empowered. Yeah. Other areas are going to go away. Yeah. I think paralegal is a job oh, yeah. that would probably go away. Yeah. There's a lot of white-collar jobs that are going to go away. But engineers... Um, are probably going to be a lot more empowered by mm-hmm. AI. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, I saw a couple of tools. One, they were just speaking what they wanted, and it was just quickly, like, developing the landing page. Like, all these things were coming just from someone's words or their text. Um, so I saw that. I mean, there's just been so many examples where I'm like, oh, man, that would definitely take away. 
I would say maybe the more menial tasks where if someone is really getting in somewhere and they're cutting, you know, the same things over and over, or they're writing the basic lines of code and they haven't learned to leverage like the tools, that's the ones I see like going away where it's like the creativity is still here. When someone has to come in and have the strategy, the ideas, like see what's possible, keep up with the market, like that's the level that I'm like, that will never, never go away. And it'll just empower those people more. I agree. But it's the ones who maybe aren't keeping up. That's like, oh, I always did it this way. Eh, yes. Maybe uh, not anymore. And, and I think there's, uh, I invest in a company called LibLab that mm-hmm. takes API and turns them into SDKs. Mm-hmm. So basically exactly what you're saying, the, the boring stuff of generating SDKs and multiple language uh, software development kits. So like if I want to use an API and in the world of AI, everything needs to become an API, then SDKs become a lot more uh, meaningful. Mm-hmm. And the creation of SDKs are is very boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a team at Twitter of three engineers who were working on SDKs. It was slightly a, of a pan- punishment, yeah. right? Not yeah. for them, but they treated it as a punishment because they had to build it in so many languages and stuff like that. If you can create that automatically, you can empower those amazing engineers that are really loved to create m- much more creative solutions. So I agree with you. The, the, the boring stuff is going to go away. The problem is that a lot of people's core job is a very boring stuff. Mm-hmm. So we'll see uh, AI displace a lot of these jobs uh, and they will go away entirely. Yep. Yeah, I saw a couple of the large tech companies were making like huge layoffs of engineers I was talking to someone in my contacts there and they were like, it's not that we don't need engineers. We just need engineers who know this thing now. And these people don't know it or they just, I don't know, didn't choose to learn it or whatever. And so they're like, we're actually hiring a lot over here, developers, engineers, all these people. It's just, we're also letting go of people who maybe, you know, are doing the more boring things. Yep. I think we're going to see a lot less builders and a lot more like software engineer, like high proficiency engineers. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that across multiple jobs, not just engineering. You're going to see that with sales. The low proficiency sales are going to be replaced by AI for sure. Mm-hmm. The low proficiency marketing tasks are going to be uh, replaced by AI. So we're going to focus more and more on extremely high proficiency creative uh, jobs that are going to manage an army of AI uh, workers. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have you seen that company? I think it's called Replit. Oh, yes. That one looks pretty interesting, too, for people to be able to come in and code when they really didn't know how to before. Like, that was something that tempted me. And even though I'm not a coder, I have built apps before, but not in that way, like not super technical. But seeing things like that pop up, I'm like, oh, wow, you're about to empower a whole new generation of people who maybe thought that they couldn't do something just because of the technical limitations. But maybe they're really creative and they have ideas. It's just they can't do the actual coding on their own. Yes, I agree. And I think uh, I know the founder of Replit, and this was his uh, mission for a very long time. And I think this technology really unlocked his vision. So Mm -hmm. I'm super happy for him and and a lot of other people. And I think this revolution unlocks a lot of the things to everyone. Just take the executive assistant. SVPs and VPs and uh, CEOs have executive assistants. Yeah. Um, soon everybody's going to have an executive assistant. Mm-hmm. We're going to have people help or like people, people, uh, AI people yeah. helping us be more productive and more creative and booking our flights and setting up all the reminders. Um, it's not going to be the, the, the benefit of the rich. It's going to be the benefit of humanity. Yeah, I've thought about I want to have just in my pocket 
an assistant that's just recording me all day. So then I can just, it can remember what conversations I'm having. I can just be like, hey, go on schedule this, go follow up with this person and literally just voice things out. And then it just does it for me. That's the best kind of assistant. That's five years from now for most most use cases. You'll have Bob or Jen or whatever persona that you choose, and they're gonna help you with all the mundane stuff. It will be equivalent, if not better, uh, to a personal assistant dedicated for you mm-hmm. that is never angry, every day slept amazingly well, <laughs> never had a traffic jam, uh, and always willing to help. There is also a negative side to all of that. Uh, and we can talk about that if you like. Yeah. I mean, let's hear about, I definitely know there's, you know, pros and cons of everything. And yeah. If I take the the red pill <laughs> or I wake up with a um, with that type of feeling, Uh, I'm thinking that it might be the last generation where you can create wealth before AI comes in, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the jobs are going to be displaced. So humans are still going to be there. They're still going to be important, but they're not going to have the capability to have a career or a long lasting career that will build generational wealth. And that has been the case for humanity for a very long time. If you were working in the field in Europe uh, 500 years ago, you didn't have any career path to become anything else. I think the modern person would have a much, much better life, but might not have the opportunity to move up or da- up the ladder w- using career opportunities because they're not going to be there. Maybe tell me more about why you think they won't be there. Like, do you think the world is just changing so quick where people will just be able to fill the role and they won't just be like, oh, Amir's been here for 20 years. Like, of course, he's going to go up this path. Or why, why won't those opportunities exist? First of all, we talked about the fact that AI is taking a lot of the mundane. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, that's their job. That's their career opportunity. That's their path. Like a small minority are the extra creative, extra amazing, uh, who's going to own the armies of AI. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a lot less jobs, potentially. There's another path of future where like we all have a lot more jobs that are a lot more creative and mm-hmm. we all find our creativity. Yeah. That's the blue pill. We're all artists. Yeah, exactly. We're all artists and AI is helping us shape uh, and, and benefit us all. But in the world where in the red pill world, it could be that a lot of the jobs are going to be displaced and a lot of the people, white color people, white people with careers that, uh, w- that create generational wealth are not going to have that opportunity. So you're going to be able to be creative, but you won't be able to create uh, financial wealth or differentiated financial wealth for your family. This has been the promise of our generation, like work hard, yeah. uh, be, be creative, do your startup, and you'll be extremely successful. It could be that AI is going to take a lot of that away from humanity. Yep. Okay. So then what would you tell your kids right now? I think you have two kids, right? Yes. I have okay. two boys. What would you advise them to do to keep up in this world or to prepare? So I think one thing is the ability to actually tap into your creativity and be able to understand that you're not going to have a single job, but multiple jobs Mm -hmm. as you progress. Um, It used to be that you were a software engineer and you knew front end or back end and you could do 15 years out of that knowledge. I think that that is not no longer the case. I think we're more moving into a world where AI is going to take 
more and more of the mundane and your proficiency needs to constantly constantly be upgraded Mm -hmm. or else you'll be irrelevant and it always used to be the case but i think now it's going to be faster and faster Mm -hmm. so the pace of that people are going to have five six careers i think Um, the second thing is Look at jobs that would be replaced and don't do them. So like, I wouldn't ask <laughs> them to. Why don't you do them? <laughs> don't, don't do them. Yep. Um, somebody tweeted uh, or posted that like uh, somebody who does renovations is mm-hmm. probably going to have a safest career uh, if you're renovating homes. Yeah. So I'm not advising my kids to do that, but I'm advising them to follow what they care about, but think about the creative stuff and think about uh, the places where AI would not easily take their job. So... To rewind a bit, back in the day, I built an app and it was like a college majors app because I had just gotten out of college and I was like, oh, college is kind of dumb in a lot of ways. And I would look around and see so many of my friends who are getting degrees and I'm like, oh, wow, you're about to spend a lot of money to get, I don't know, a psychology degree or something. That seems pretty terrible idea, but it wasn't an easy place to see the trends. And so I went in and made this app called College Majors and it basically showed like, here's a degree, here's the jobs you can get, here's the growth rate of this industry, here's like how long it'll take you to pay back your student loans. There's like a one holistic view of like, here's what your future can look like if you choose that degree. Is there anywhere that shows industries right now, like in a way that people can easily understand of like, these things might not be the best things to get into. The growth rates are headed down, like AI is coming in, there will not be a big demand of, you know, people to come into this industry like it used to be? Like, is there anything that you know of that shows that view for someone like your kids or anyone who's like going into college and being like, what major should I choose? That, that's a great uh, idea for a startup. I know. I, I, I should give you the the uh, code to my our app. It's still a good idea. Yeah, yeah. You it's should just, do it now. Back then I was hiring a developer. They were in a different country. I was actually having to do all the stuff with the SDK and iOS and like, it was terrible. But I, that's also not my skill set. But... I'm like, man, having these like holistic views. It's did- super important. Yeah. And, and I think the the world is, ra- is changing so rapidly that you need to have that. Mm-hmm. Like universities are still teaching people skills that are not going to be important at all soon. Yep. And um, it's really sad because, as you said, like the cost of education is becoming crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I I left university in, in the middle of the university just to get to a, a, an okay paying job because I couldn't afford it. And I couldn't stand uh, standard education. But um, I think people are going to put a lot of money into a role that will be deprecated before they even finish their degree. Yep. So like your idea makes a lot of sense. Good, you can Um, help me build up. I just actually brought you on here just to recruit you for this. (laughs) Let's do that. (laughs) There's actually a good book. Maybe you know of this one. Um, Because I I, I was thinking if I was a kid, or anyone really going to school, I would want to read this. Have you heard of this Awaken Your Genius by Ozen Verrall? No. So this one's really good because he starts his whole book talking about how outdated a lot of schooling is and degrees and like, I mean, just kind of what you were saying, but really in detail about how they really like beat out the creativity of kids and these the way that they've standardized things and how actually if you're like creative as a child, you are kind of annoying to teachers. And they're like, that's a worse kid. I would rather have the one who just you come in, you learn your facts, you pass your tests. That's what I want. I don't want the kid who's thinking outside this box. And just listening to this book and having kids, I'm like, oh, I just want to make sure they have a different experience than what I had that was just super traditional. You do the thing, you make the money, get the degree, go into finance. Yeah. You'll be good, you know? And like, there wasn't a lot of room for me to play and think. 
It's funny, you're talking about a book. The book that actually is the red pill book is mm-hmm. called The Expanse, which okay. talk about the expanse of humanity. And a portion of that book is dedicated to Earth. What happens if humanity expand? And mm-hmm. Earth is basically everybody's on basic. So they're on basic income. They live their life. They get the money from the government. They don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And they need to prove that they're creative enough and unique enough to get funding to join the university. And if they join that, they could go outside of Earth and join the the rest of humanity outside of Earth. Mm-hmm. But it could be that a big portion, at least for according to that book, book a big portion of humanity is stuck on basic, yeah. where AI and all the things are done for you. And you're basically... Professor Danarielli and a lot of other uh, academia people talked about like meaning. How would us as humanity deal with this world where your meaning is no longer your work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's a very interesting thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many ways we could go that because I'm like, you talk about getting into a spiritual sense where it's like once you maybe pass away or whatever, it's like money's no good anymore. All those things aren't good anymore. And I actually see that concept of what a lot of people ex- explore in like different ceremonies coming back down to earth where it's like, what if most things were covered and we didn't exchange value just through money or who's doing what type of thing. And it actually is based off of creativity or emotional intelligence or how you connect with other people and like bringing it back to the human element, which makes me think why Sam Altman wanted universal basic income when he started going into open AI, he probably saw like, uh-oh. Yeah, he might have, saw, have seen the, this He was ahead of all happening. of us. Yes, exactly. Jeez. Um, and I think that there's also a positive spin to that. I, One of my bosses told me that her uh, identity was tied to the ticker that she worked yeah. at. So like she, when, when the stock was up, she was happy when the stock was done. It was mm-hmm. on. And that's a very sad way of living your life. And it's a very... Uh, to some extent, it's a very Silicon Valley way to live your life. Yep. And I've been there for a long time. I love the Silicon Valley. But it also has this tendency to put uh, an importance on where you work and what you do rather than who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that maybe the next generation will know better. Yeah. Um, and, and I've been a priest of that, uh, yeah. <laughs> of tech for a very long time. But maybe uh, at, at the tail end of my career, I'm thinking what have we done wrong and what what can can be improved on that mm-hmm. yeah that's a good spot so what are the companies that you're interested in right now i mean i know you're now entering into this very cool new space of investing in companies and you're you have your own fund but to me you're on the forefront of this whole thing like what are you looking at right now what do you think's interesting or even maybe contrarian where people would be like amir that's not like not a good idea and you're like i'm oh. doing it <laughs> so one thing i'm uh one of my last investments is called uh, Clarity. It's a company that knows how to distinguish between AI-generated content mm-hmm. and human-generated content. That's so good. I think that's super important. Yep. I think we're in a, we're at the edge of humanity not being able to tell whether a certain content is you or mm-hmm. not you. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that like the legal system is depending on that. And the political system is depending on that. Like, I, if I can create a video of any candidate saying mm-hmm. whatever I want, and you couldn't distinguish that from reality and it's yeah. fake, then that's a very big problem. So, jeez, uh, like the biggest problem I see, I actually have a guy coming into the studio who he was the Tom Cruise deep fake video. He created oh, that. Wow. Okay. That's and, amazing. Yeah. He reached out. I was like, can I come on the show? And I was like, well, tell me why. And he actually had the whole moral thing of like, why I even did that was to bring awareness of like, 
you know, be prepared for this. This is what to expect. And it was a whole like awareness play, allegedly. But- so so Cl- Clarity is a very interesting company uh, trying to solve that, mm-hmm. to uh, distinguish between those. How do you uh, do that? I mean, I don't know if you know behind the scenes or maybe you can't tell me, but like, how can you keep up? So they are, they basically have a smart model. Uh, the problem is that if you have AI versus AI, you're basically training the bad guys. Yeah. Uh, you're creating a signal so that the AI, you say, hey, there's a glitter in the eye that is not consistent. The AI just knows how to improve that, creates a better glitter of the eye, and then it beca- makes, a, makes it better. Uh, but if you cut certain parts of the video and create certain and run multiple al- algorithms on that, then you have a better chance of not teaching the adversarial AI. Yep. So they have this like smart model where they could um, pretty easily not teach the adversarial AI uh, how they got to their signal. Got uh, it. That's which, so good. Which is pretty smart. I see uh, platforms already penalizing people on using AI stuff. Like I saw YouTube. I don't know. Don't quote me on this. But the other day I was uploading some of our YouTube shorts and I use this tool, I won't name it, but it helps you come up with an AI generated title and description. And I published it and it got like no views, which is kind of abnormal. And so I, after a day, I pulled it down and I just wrote in my own title with my own short description, published it. And it was like 500 views right away. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I think we're already in a place now where the platforms are like, we don't want AI to figure out our algorithm and we don't want these AI generating descriptions and titles and all this, because then you know how yeah, it, it's this. garbage in, right? Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. The mm-hmm. problem with platforms is that currently they open it to any content and AI is the easiest generator of a lot of uh, content. The problem is the content is not that good so and not that engaging. So you get flooded with mediocre content. Mm-hmm. Your job as a uh, owner of this platform is to moderate or at least signal that this content is not high quality. Yeah. So that's that's one investment that I do. I, I, I really like open platforms. So I want to invest in uh, more standards, more open platform, more tools for developers to be successful. I think if you look at the Silicon Valley, no matter which hype you had, and we talked about it like Web3 as a hype, we talked mm-hmm. about um, there's a lot of other uh, hypes. If you look at the developer platforms, they have been consistently successful. Mm-hmm. If you look at... Salesforce as an enterprise or Slack as an enterprise uh, platform for developers, they've been consistently successful. If you look at AWS or Google Cloud, Android, iOS, all these have been consistently successful Mm -hmm. for a very long time. So I'm trying to think about who is going to capture and eat their lunch, Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to disrupt those. And I have a certain, I wouldn't say hate because that's a very strong word, but like there's certain enterprise software that needs to go away. Things like uh, like some aspects of Workday, some aspects of like enterprise software mm-hmm. that we can do a lot uh, better. And I think there's an opportunity there to reinvent, uh, reinvent that. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Okay, so I wanted to, I know we're, you know, get, getting a little close. So I want to shift over to, you know, you being an investor now, you're probably getting pitches. You're probably talking to a lot of founders. I know you mentor a lot of founders. Yes. How would you advise founders who are either trying to get investors? Like, what are you looking at when you're picking the companies? Obviously, it's very much in like your arena of developers and those kind of, you know, technologies. But knowing what you know now, like, how are you working with these founders or advising them um, if they're coming to you and asking for help around probably like raising money or company building? Yeah, I think a lot of founders 
early stage founders, first time founders look at the investor as a customer. They say, oh, this investor told me to do that, so I did it. Or this investor didn't like this aspect, so I changed it. You should be very clear about who your customer is. Your customer is the user paying you for your service, not the investor. And your job is to build conviction for yourself that you're building the right thing. And if you've done that, getting the funding should be relatively easy. So second time, second time founders and seasoned founders come and say, hey, I thought about this idea. I collected the right team. These are the numbers that are really important for my business. And these are the tests that I've done in order to reach a strong conviction that this is a real problem, big problem, and that we have the right team and possibly the right solution for that. Mm -hmm. And when you come to an investor with like the numbers, and I wrote a, a blog post about like the numbers that, that uh, investors care about, things mm -hmm. like um, engagement, things like growth, depending on the business, mm -hmm. the things that uh, around 90-day happy users. Yeah. Um, these are the type of KPIs that investors care about, but they care about because that's the important heart of your business. So yeah. my, my first thing is to uh, early stage entrepreneurs is understand who your customer is really, really deep, deeply, understand the ins and outs of your business, build conviction for yourself. And if you have conviction and meaning to what you're building, getting funding, getting the, the key hiring, getting the right customers in becomes a lot easier. I'm not I'm saying easier, not easy, yeah. because easy, it's never easy. If you want to have an easy life, go and work in corporate America. For but, now. For now. But if you want to do a startup and want an easier life, know and focus on your customer. Um, one thing I really like about Jeff Bezos, he has this notion of customer obsession. Mm -hmm. And at a VP course I, I went through, like they talk about customer obsession, customer obsession. And they tell all these stories about how uh, people who didn't have customer obsession were not successful in Amazon. And I think the same thing goes for founders. Mm -hmm. Founders need to be extremely focused on the customer. And the VC is a partner. Yep. They're not the customer. They need to be there for you and for your customer. Mm, that's good. Okay, I want to dig into some of your numbers. Because for me, being on the outside, if I were to come in, coming to you, like, and we talk about engagement, like what engagement, what are you looking for around engagement with these platforms? What's good or what's not? So the answer is, I don't know. It really depends on the business. But a good question that I ask uh, founders um, during my due diligence is, tell me about your perfect user. What is a usage pattern of your perfect user? So a developer, for example, would come in, they would come in from Monday to Friday. So they're, they're not up on weekends, mm -hmm. weekdays, between working hours, how many times do they use your product? Yeah. Okay. So define this pattern for me. And it could be that it's not every day. Maybe it's once a week mm -hmm. or once a month. I, I like it where it's more like once a week yeah. than once a month because products that you don't use every day, you tend to forget about. Mm -hmm. And then how many of those perfect users that you just defined, how many of those do you have? And how many of those do you have for a very long time? 90 days. doesn't need to be a lot uh, like uh, two years, but mm -hmm. like define an active user, measure that active user across 90 days and show me 
a mechanism for getting more of these, mm-hmm. getting more of these engagement users. And if you don't have any of these, which is okay, what is your plan to get there? And there's always a magical aspect to it. At Twitch, we called it five minutes watched. If a user has shown this behavior of five minutes watched, then they're more inclined to spend money, to continue, to subscribe, to do a lot of these things. At Slack, it would be inviting another person to my Slack team. Mm-hmm. And then you start creating. So like looking at these like perfect patterns or magical patterns and then seeing how I can generate a lot of these and what are how can my roadmap impact those, these are the important aspect of building a good product. Yep, that's good. I, uh, I mean, it's really a good reminder about unique metrics depending on the business because it's so easy to look around, you know, in this like startup landscape, like look around and just be like, oh, that person had that number or this one. And I actually remember at somewhere else I worked, all all these teams were using the same measurements. They were using the same metrics. And I remember looking, I'm like, man, you're measuring time on platform. And for this specific product, time on platform is actually like not a good indicator because if you're spending a lot of time, that means there's problems. Exactly. And like, this is not a platform that you should be spending a lot of time on. And if you are, uh-oh. And so they were putting that in our like quarterly business reviews of like, look at our time on platform. And they were just comparing it against other products, other priorities. But I remember me coming from a finance perspective being like, uh, I think that's actually not the right way to think about it. And just remembering that like, yeah, uniqueness to every product and like the engagement metrics and everything like should just be based off of your product, your company. Like, A hundred percent agree. And you can even hurt your company if you put the wrong metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote an article about this imaginary social company that gives a metric to one of their uh, one of their product people of uh, videos watched. So they come up with an idea that every video should automatically pay so that they could get more yep. and could get promoted, but the users they don't love it. Mm-hmm. They think it's horrible so that every video that they see automatically plays. But that person already got promoted, yep. so they don't care. They're now going and ruining another business yep. because if you build the wrong KPIs, the wrong key performance indicators, mm-hmm. smart people will do the wrong thing mm-hmm. to meet their targets. Yeah, yeah, unintended consequences 100%. and like not thinking about incentives of is that actually the good metric that we 100%. want to. Oh man, yeah, lots of stories around that. So, what are you most excited about for the coming year? What are you most bullish on? What are you watching closely? Just what's kind of like bring you joy? Oh, what, bring, what brings me joy? And those are three questions. So now uh, you have yeah, to remember totally all three different. of them. <laughs> yeah. What brings me joy is being kind and empathetic and helping people grow and, and build uh, amazing software, creative solutions, uh, even things that are outside of tech. So that's, that's one. Uh, being a foodie is brings me joy as well. I'm super excited about um, about AI, not just the generative AI and Chat GPT. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote the book on conversational interfaces with O'Reilly, so I no big deal. <laughs> uh, I, I love that area deeply. Yeah. But I also think about like all the things that we could do to help global warming uh, and to have a better uh, political system and. Uh, less abusive social uh, system. So how can we use the technologies that this new hammer Mm -hmm. that we found to make the world better? So I'm I'm super excited about that. Uh, And lastly, I'm super excited about the new generation of of founders. I think uh, even in in the downturn, you see a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to change their world and doing it in a much more sound and less FOMO uh, environment. 
where they're actually being driven to drive value and not drive um, just uh, FOMO deals mm-hmm. and, and extremely high valuations that they can't meet. Yep. So I'm super excited for the future. Yep, I love it. All right, well, that is a perfect place to stop here. Amir, thanks for coming on Mission oh, Daily. thank you for having me. Where can our listeners, viewers, everyone find more about your journey and what you're up to? So I'm available on Medium, not so much on Twitter yeah, uh, these days, but Blue Sky, I'm Amir.blue um, on, on Medium, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very social, so just reach out to me and I'm, I'm super happy to, to connect. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.